0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week we did our introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians and we saw a little bit about the city, uh, how a metropolis of a city Corinth was and how it was a diverse group of people, how it was a a very wealthy city. Uh, And we saw that the church reflected and mirrored the city in many, many ways, including that when people came out from the city into the church and had an experience with Jesus, they brought some of the baggage with them that came into the world. There were 20-some temples to other gods in the city of Corinth, and uh, it was overrun with sin and idolatry, and there was just so much uh, immorality going on in the city. And Paul is dealing with several issues. If you remember last week, I told you there was two types of issues that Paul was dealing with. One, he was dealing with issues that he had heard was going on in the church, and he's addressing those issues Secondly, he's dealing with issues that the church had previously written to Paul about, and he's answering uh, some of those questions and some of the things that they had brought to Paul to address. And we're going to see both of those this morning. So we're going to begin in chapter 1, and we'll be on page uh, 64 in your book. We're going to do the walkthrough of 1 Corinthians and just kind of give an overview of each chapter to read some of the scripture that we find in here. And the first nine verses of the first chapter of First Corinthians is uh, the introduction and the thanksgiving. As we said with the epistles, they are letters. This was a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And he begins in his usual way with, with himself, Paul called to be an apostle with an introduction in verse number two, he addresses who the letter is written to, to the church of God in Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be His holy people. Uh, and then in verse 4, he goes into a thanksgiving. And I want to read this 4 through 7. He says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. And as we said last week, it was Paul instructing them and correcting them in many different areas. Because they came into this experience where they were believers in Jesus. But just because we become believers in Jesus, we start a process of growing. We don't become mature believers overnight. Uh, we don't stop messing up. There's some things, you know, we don't stop every bad habit overnight. We don't shake everything. You know, that's a process. It's a sanctification process that is a daily work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our word, as we, you know, grow from our leaders, as we get instruction in the word. And, you know, what? it takes time to work all those things out. So one of the major things that, that we do oftentimes is so many times we judge a person's salvation by their level of sanctification. And that's not the case. Salvation is simply believing in Jesus and receiving what He's done for you. And He fills us with the Holy Spirit, and that begins the process of working things out. And that's what Paul was doing here in the the church in Corinth. In fact, he even addresses them. He says, you know, you are babes in Christ, so I have to deal with you as if you are little children in Christ Jesus. You know, and in in his opinion, maybe they should have been growing faster at the rate. And obviously there were some in the congregation that claimed to be brothers and sisters, but their actions were totally against anything uh, that should belong in the church. So a very delicate group of people that he's dealing with here, but yet I love how he affirms them. One of the things I'm a strong believer in is affirming believers and who they are in Jesus Christ you know, because we are all on this process. But Jesus has done wonderful things for us. So even in verse two, he addresses them as those who were sanctified. Well, when we read the book, they don't act like sanctified people. You know, these issues are not issues that would come with sanctified people. But yet, as we saw Sunday, yes, we are sanctified in Jesus Christ. And because of his blood, he makes us holy. But there's a daily outworking of that in a daily growing into who he has made us, but he affirms them of who they are. You are sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are called to be his holy people. You may not be acting like it right now, but that's who you're called to be. He's encouraging them to become who they are in Christ. So he begins in verse four with thanking God for them, um, which you really don't get that tone through the letter because he's correcting them and correcting them, but yet he thanks God for them and because of the grace, because truly if it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us could stand in the presence of God. And he says in verse 5, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be Reveal. They don't lack any spiritual gift. They have all those gifts. Later, he'll talk about their misuse of those gifts, but he's affirming them. You know, you have all of these gifts from Christ. Verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. And all that he's getting ready to correct them with, he begins by God is faithful. God has given you grace. He has enriched you in every way. He's given you every spiritual gift. God is faithful. He called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I love how he sets out this tone because he's dealing with people who are, you know, immature in the faith. He's dealing with people who need spiritual growth. He's dealing with people who are rebellious. And instead of just going right in on them, like he will do in the letter, he begins with this word of encouragement and grace. And that's something that I really love. Um, verses 10 through 14, we see one of the problems and one of the major problems that Paul is dealing with in this church, and that is the division over leaders. As you see in your book, the problem is a combination of their anti-Paul sentiment. Some of the people in the church were very anti-Paul. They were for these other leaders. They didn't think they needed a human leader at all, that Jesus was their leader. Uh, And this has broken out over strife over their leaders which is being carried on in the name of wisdom or has been carried on in the name of human wisdom. You know, sometimes we can think that we are more wise than those who may be instructing us at times. We maybe think we know more than, you know, some of the people... You know, we, how, many time, how many times have you gone to the doctor and you come back? Well, he don't know what he's talking about. I know, I know, I, this, 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 and this, and suddenly we know more than the doctor. We know more than the, the teacher. We know more than you know our boss at work. And you know, some, sometimes our wisdom, you know, even though when we think that we may be more right, can cause us to be puffed up and can cause us to go astray. And that's what's happened here. Their human wisdom has caused them to think more highly of themselves than they really are, and to think that they know more than The leaders that are over them. So, this is one of the main issues that's causing division. And when you have those in the church, you know, or here, you have it in any sphere of of life that are, you know, uh, pitting one leader against another, and that would cause people not to come under the authority. So, Paul is a spirit, he has spiritual authority, you know, in this church, and he's trying to teach them. But if there are people coming against Paul, it's not just going to hurt Paul. It's going to hurt the teaching that Paul is trying to give them to lead them into the life that God has for them. So that's the main problem that we see addressed in the first four chapters is the division over leaders. So, and I want to read verses 10 through 14, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that that's the response he's getting. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, well, I follow. Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Are all these leaders against one another and separate? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And then he goes on to talk a little more, but you know, he's, he's affirming them that, you know, you need to be united in one, there should not be these divisions over these leaders for the the leaders aren 't divided and he goes on to talk about the role of the leaders, as we 're going to see in just a moment. but uh, from verses one through uh, thirteen over to chapter three, he deals with this issue of wisdom because that 's at, at, at the heart. human wisdom puffs up human wisdom oftentimes doesn 't s- submit in humility, so he takes on the problem of wisdom. And his whole point is that Christ crucified is God's power and God's wisdom. That God's wisdom is found in the gospel. It's not found in human wisdom at all. And he points out four things to them. He says, everything about their existence in Christ gives the lie to their present wisdom. Their own calling talks about the wisdom of God. Paul's preaching points to the wisdom of God. And it's the role of the Spirit to reveal the cross as God's wisdom. So he says their very own existence speaks of God's wisdom. Paul's preaching speaks of God's wisdom. And the Spirit reveals God's wisdom. And all of that is revealed in Christ Jesus. So let's look together in verse number 18. Verse number 18, we'll kind of go through this passage. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. And he he asks several questions. In Verse 20, he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know Him. All of human wisdom did not cause us to know God. In fact, when you go through the Old Testament, you look at something like the Tower of Babel, human, human wisdom and builds up human pride and causes them to fall away from God and think that they themselves are God. He says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So he's pitting this human wisdom, human strength against godly wisdom. And the point is this, human wisdom and human strength must bow to God's wisdom and God's strength. If it doesn't, you find what you have written in the rest of this book. You find immorality, you find idolatry, you find arguing. You find believers hurting one another. You find them doing ungodly things to one another. You find them abusing the very church that God has put them into. You find people who think God is foolish out in the world. So human wisdom and human strength must bow to godly wisdom and godly strength. So he says in verse 26 and 27, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Now, this is kind of a backhanded compliment, you know, he's going to give them. He calls them the people of God and they're sanctified. But, but then he says this, he says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I guess that could be a compliment. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe they weren't the most upper class or the most you know, rich or wealthy or, or influential or professional people, but you know, God loved them either way. He said, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If we skip a couple of verses to verse number 30, it goes on to say, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of your human wisdom, not because of anything about you, not not by your standing or your lack thereof in society. He says, it is by Him that you are in Christ, who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. The wisdom of God, the gospel, Christ. So the picture is those who are not really wise, those who are not really strong, those who are of not really noble birth or high standard, now have obtained something greater than the world, not the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God, which has brought righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he appeals to their own, who they are, as God's wisdom, as proof of God's wisdom, that even though they were not the wisest and the richest and the wealthiest, God chose them, And because God chose them and God saved them, now they are wiser than the wisest. They are stronger than the strongest out in the world. They have a more noble birth than all of those that have noble birth out in the world because of what Christ has done for them in the spirit and in true righteousness. Then he appeals and he goes to his own preaching. Paul goes to his own preaching. And Paul was a very... Uh, learned man. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He had standing among those in Israel. But listen to what Paul says. Paul says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So he speaks about his own self, and that he even submits to the righteousness of God, choosing not to preach anything and not to know anything, not to pretend he's smarter than everybody else, but to simply preach Christ. And him crucified with his message being confirmed by the works of the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit reveals the wisdom of God through the cross. In verse number 6 through 10, he says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived for the things God has prepared for them who love him. These things are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit." Now, I know that passage is used most times in the context of heaven. We heard it read at funerals a lot of times. But in the context, it was speaking of what God would do through Jesus Christ. How God would save, how he would use the foolishness of the preaching of the cross to bring forth glory and to make the the unwise wise and the weak strong and the rich poor. And he's he's saying no, no one imagined that. No one could see how God was going to use that. You know, and even going back to Romans, talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. That was a mystery that Paul said was hidden from ages ago, but has now been revealed. This is speaking that no one had conceived of God's plan of using a crucified Messiah of the cross and calling those who the world sees as less than to ultimately be the ones who would rule and reign with Him, bringing salvation. But he says the Spirit reveals this to us. And then he goes on to talk about how you know, the Spirit reveals that, and how the natural man cannot receive the things of the Holy Spirit. So he takes on their issue of wisdom. The next thing we see in chapter 3, he corrects their inadequate understanding of several things. He corrects their inadequate understanding you know, of leaders, of what their idea of leaders are to be, and he says that leaders are merely human servants, they're servants of God. They're, they're nobody in themselves, but yet they serve God. Then he talks about the church. That the church is the temple of God in Corinth. Thus there should be no boasting in mere mortals. And really they have a childish, and when, when our book says here, he corrects their inadequate understanding, it could be, you could really interpret that their childish understanding. Their childish understanding. You know, Paul would go on to say, he said, when I was a child, you know, I thought as a child, I understood as a child, I did the things that the child does. He says, but now that I'm not a child, I've put away childish things. So he's correcting their inadequate, their childish understanding. Look in verse number one and two of chapter three. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but people who are still worldly. Now again, he's affirming them, brothers and sisters. He's not throwing them away. He's not saying, well, you're not good enough, or you're not really saved. He says, brothers and sisters, but yet they're lacking a sense of spirituality that he's trying to grow them in. He says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He said, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready for it. Then in verse number five, he goes on to say, he he mentions their divisions over leaders again. He says, what? After all is Apollos, or what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters as anything, but only God who makes it grow. He says, so we shouldn't pit you know, leaders against one another. We're not against one another. We're working together for the good of the Corinthians to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ and to grow them. You know. And ultimately, it's God who has the sovereignty over the leaders of the church themselves. So he's correcting their idea of leaders, that leaders are merely servants. So we shouldn't divide over leaders or this one, this one, this one. But no, he said leaders work together, but God is the ultimate authority over them all. If you go down to verse number 16 of that book, he addresses the the second thing in this chapter. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So he's showing them the importance of them as a body of believers. He says, you are, you, the church at Corinth, you are God's temple. He says, but by the, by this division of the leaders caused by human wisdom, thinking themselves are, are better and greater, not submitting to spiritual authority. He says, they're coming in trying to divide God's temple, trying to destroy God's temple, trying to break down God's temple. And Paul issues, you know, a strong warning to them, you know, that this is God's temple. God's spirit dwells here. So if anyone tries to destroy it, then they have an issue with God for God's temple is sacred. Again, he's not talking about a building. You know, they had all the buildings to the other temples of the gods in Corinthians, just as they did with Romans. But he says, no, you as a people, you are the temple of God and you are sacred. You together are that temple. So he says in verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Again, encouraging them to submit to the wisdom of God. Verse 21 says, so then no more boasting about human leaders. No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or in the present or the future, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is of God submitting to Christ, not their human wisdom, not their faith in whichever leader they choose or dividing between the leaders, but it all ends up with God. So the first response is he responds to human wisdom. The second response he's responding to their under, in a childish understanding of leaders the third is their criticism of Paul himself, because some were very anti-Paul. So in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verse number 1 and 2, Paul says, This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must be proved Faithful. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before its appointed time until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So Paul does not rise and fall on their praise or their criticism or their judgment. Paul stands before God, just like Everyone else does. Uh, When you go down to verse number 8, verse number 8 is um, sarcasm from Paul. Totally sarcasm. So I want you to listen to his tone in verse number 8. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you were really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. So they, again, have a more high view of themselves. And Paul says, you know, by your standards, you don't need us. You're rich. You already have everything. You already rule and reign. He says, and you rule and reign without us as apostles. What, what, what do we know as apostles? He says, for it seems to me that God's put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like as those condemned to die in the arena, We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels and human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags and brutally beaten and homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are crushed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Verse number 18, he says, Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and I will find out not only those who are arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love and a gentle spirit? So Paul's saying, I can be whoever you want me to be. If you're going to be arrogant, if you're going to talk, if you're going to think you know better, if you're going to think that you're better than the apostles, then just wait until I come to you. He said, "But if you humble yourselves, you're willing to you're willing to submit to the gospel and to the servants of the gospel, not to think you're better." Paul says, "Then when I come to you, I will come in love and a gentle spirit." So you see Paul literally taking on this role of a spiritual father. You know, those of us that have been parents, you know, you know sometimes it's love and grace and sometimes you know the moments that you have to crack out the rod and you have to get serious and Paul's at one of those moments because Paul takes seriously the church. Because he goes back up and he said, you know, he takes seriously the church as the temple. And when he sees people dividing the church and causing problems in the church and and he sees you know the church arguing and all these things, you know, it not only hurts Paul, but you know, it hurts the heart of God, which hurts Paul. Even more. So, Paul is being a father, even to the point of discipling them in this church, which is leading to some of the things that he has heard now. So, the problem of leaders he addressed in these first four uh, chapters again, the problem of human wisdom, you know, that the wisdom of of God is wiser than this world, Uh, their inadequate understanding of leaders, the defense of his own apostleship, and then the the warning them against their own pride and against uh, their own uh, puffed-up human knowledge. Then we go into several uh, specific issues. In chapter 5, there is a case of, of incest in the community. Uh, in chapter 6, there's an internal, uh, external litigation for internal problems by believers. Uh, on 6, you have people that you know want to go to the prostitutes that are in the city. And then you have 7 and chapter 7, who deals with the issue of married and those who are different phases in their married life. Then you have chapters 8 through 11, which deal with idle food in the marketplace. So there's a series of, you know, just just a series of issues that we'll look at the problem and then Paul's response. So in chapter 5, he deals with the case of incest. So the problem is... A believer is living incestuously with his father's wife, another wife of his father, but not his biological mother. They are directly at odds with his previous letter to them. So a very serious case of something really crazy that's happening here in the church. Paul's response, as we see in the book, since Paul has already judged the offender, they are to gather in the power of Christ and turn him over to Satan, i.e. put him back out of the church into Satan's sphere for the sake of the church in the present and finally for the offender's own salvation. So he's telling them how to deal with this problem. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. You know the church is obviously not just putting up with it, but uh, have a sense of, of pride over it. He says, "Should't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship, the, uh, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled, I, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So basically, and he goes on to talk about, let's see if I can just spot the verse real quick. Um, Um, verse number 11, he says, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. So the indication is that this is one that claims to be a brother in Christ, uh, but obviously is doing things that they don't even do in the, in the pagan temples with all types of, of hideous things going on out there. So Paul's answer to them is simply you know, to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And what does that mean? Well, basically, you know, as it says here, it's, it literally means just, you know, to put him out of fellowship, to put him out of the church back in, in the world, to, to definitely not regard him as a brother for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may save, that he would ultimately come to repentance, that he would ultimately stop and come to repentance and truly put his faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what that scripture means. You know, a lot. I've read a lot of things about it and people read into it a lot But, you know, the most surface level cases to put him back out into the world so that he would come back to, that he would come to God in repentance, that his spirit may be saved. He goes on in verse 6, your boasting is not good. And that's another issue. Their boasting is not good. You know, his sin is horrendous, but their not just blind eye, but seemingly approval of it is not good at all. So he says in verse six, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may have a new unleavened batch as you really are. There's another little word of affirmation. As you really are. Act as you really are because you're acting as who you are not. You're acting like those still out in the world as those not been redeemed by Christ. Act as you really are. Uh, and He appeals on the basis of, of uh, Christ's sacrifice. In verse number 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. He says, in that case, you would have to leave the world. He says, so, he says the issue in this case is not the people out there in the world, He says, for if you're trying to get away from all the immoral people, you're just going to have to leave the world because that's all there are in the world, immoral people. But he says, I'm writing to you about those who claim to be a brother or sister in the church who are consistently and constantly doing these things to not approve them. He says, therefore, um," he says, I'm writing to you that you must not associate, verse 11, with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister that is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slander, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. He says, what business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Paul doesn't have apostolic authority over those outside the church. He says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So he says the final word, expel the wicked person from among you. Expel the wicked person. So that's his take on this case of incest. In chapter 6, we find uh, the problem. What we find is one brother has cheated another, verse 8. Who has taken him to the pagan courts for judgment, and the church has done nothing. So you have internal problems between believers in the church that have now taken it to the legal system of the day. And Paul's response is that shouldn't be. Paul's response is by doing nothing, the church has betrayed its existence as God's people. He issues shame on the litigant, uh, warning to the defendant. But know how Paul ends by affirming their redemption through Jesus Christ in the spirit. So verse number one, we'll just skip through a few of these verses. Verse number one, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? So this is a matter Paul thinks should be handled within the church and among God's people. Uh, verse number five, he says, I say this to shame you. Now, he said before, I said something not to shame you. He says, I say this to shame you. He says, is it possible, and here's another little, another little jab to them, he says, is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to, to judge a dispute between believers? There's nobody wise or discerning enough. But instead, one brother's taking another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. He says in the first part of verse number 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated all ready. Uh, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. He says, or do you not know that the wrongdoers, uh, that do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? They are a part of God's people. They are a part of the kingdom of God. They should be judging their own thing, but yet they're taking it out before the, the ungodly world and unjust and ungodly judges, and he says, You're the ones that will inherit the kingdom, not those out in the world. And then he, you know, gives the list of the people out in the world that will not are not a part of the kingdom of God like like they are. He says, and such were some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God. So they should have enough of the Spirit and discerning to know how to judge these matters. To not take it before those out in the world. And again, he affirms and saying, that's who you were, but that's not who you are now. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Another, there's another affirming word. That's, That's not who you are anymore. That's who you were, that's not who you are anymore. Then going on to chapter or verse number 12, we see another problem. Uh, In the name of their rights as believers, that that because they're not, you know, Paul's preaching is not being under the law and that, that they're free and because of their freedom in Christ and on the basis of their low view of the body. And when he says here in the book, the basis of their low view of the body, there were some uh, philosophies of the day that, that were going around that were predominant in, in the city in Corinth. And a lot of these had to do with the body, that the body was nothing. It was all about, it was all about spirituality. And it, it could have been the phrase that people were so spiritually minded they were no earthly good. Uh, but this, their spiritual minded, was not based on Christ, and it was not based on the scripture. You know, it was based on their human philosophies and their spiritual ideas, of the day. And a low view of the body uh, brought a low view of, you know, food. It brought a low view of, of relations. And that's what Paul was dealing with in the marriage. There were apparently women who said, you know, I'm too spiritual to have, you know, sexual relations with my husband anymore. And they just stopped doing that uh, and could, uh, of course, have led to this problem here in verse number 12. But because of a low view of the body or an over-realized spirituality, and their freedom and rights as believers, some men are arguing for the right to visit the prostitutes that are out in the pagan temples. Paul's response is, against their views of freedom, that though you may have the freedom to do what you want, not all things are beneficial for you. Only the beneficial counts. And to be mastered by anything is a form of bondage. Against their view of the body, he does four things. He appeals to the Lord's resurrection. As affirming the body, he appeals to the nature of sexual intercourse as uniting two people and, how, and the significance of that. And thus, one cannot be united to the Lord and united to a prostitute at the same time. Since the body belongs to the Lord, and we are united with Him, and we are the temple of God, our devotion, our uniting should be to the Lord. So, just a couple of these uh, scriptures in verse number 13. He says, uh, at the end of that verse, he says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Again, he's affirming them. There's another word of affirmation. Here's who are. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's what happened when you came to know Jesus. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. But whoever is unified with the Lord or united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he says, flee from uh, sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually against his own body or sins against their own body, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what you do in your body matters. It matters with the Spirit. It's not the Spirit apart from the body. It's honoring God through the body, honoring God with your Spirit through your body. So his response to going to the prostitutes is, don't do that. Flee from sexual immorality. So I've always said, you know you are reaching unsaved and unchurched people when you have to stand up in your church and say, don't go to the prostitutes. That's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, So you're actually doing good if that's what you have to say, because that shows you're reaching people uh, that you probably weren't reaching before. As I said, every church deals with problems, just what kind of problems you're going to have. Uh, And these are the types of problems that Paul has here with this, again, this young, immature church that he's trying to grow into who Christ has made them to be in the Spirit. So then we come to chapter, I'm trying to look, I don't know if we can finish all this. We might can. We'll just just speed up a little quicker, not read as much. But chapter 7, to the married and the once married. So now issues come up with marriage. Paul, at this stage of his life, we don't know Paul's past. We don't know if he was married before or if he was never married or he was married and his wife died or if he became a Christian. We we don't know Paul's status. We know that Paul was not married uh, for at least all of this portion of his life continually. And Paul really saw that as a good thing. (laughs) You know, for Paul, that that was good for him. Um, And so, you know, one of Paul's views that he expresses here is, in chapter seven is, you know, basically the overall theme is to all these questions about marriage and singleness and getting married or divorcing. You know, what he says here is basically how you came to Christ, stay that way. That's good for you to do. If you came married, stay married, don't get divorced. He said, if you came single, stay single. If you want to get married, okay, it's fine to get married, but it's okay to stay single as well. Um, you know, if, you're, if you came in and you were married to an unbeliever, stay married to that unbeliever if they're willing. Uh, but if they leave, let them leave, that's okay. Um, so if, if changes occur, that's okay. But Paul is advocating for however you came to the Lord, you know, that's, that's how you should stay in there. Uh, again, as we saw previously, some were casting off all moral restraint, just going crazy. And then as I mentioned the philosophies, some were going the other way. They were adopting celibacy uh, or some of the women were adopting, you know, uh, no relations within marriage and just, you know, cutting their husband off. We're not doing that. That's not spiritual. And that was causing problems. So we find here the problem. The problem is on the basis of a slogan. And here's what he says. It is good for a man not, uh, King James says, not to touch a woman or not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of the women apparently are arguing for no sex within marriage because they Uh, I've already assumed their heavenly existence over and over spirituality. Uh, And if not regarding uh, no sex, then for their right to divorce. And Paul's response is fourfold. To the married, he says, stop depriving each other and maintain full sexual relations. He says, don't stop. He says, if you stop for a certain time for prayer and fasting, fine, but quickly come back together. Because, you know, one thing Paul does understand, if there's no intimacy in a marriage then that's going to cause problems. So this issue could have caused the people wanting to go to the prostitutes to fulfill that need. So he tells them that is good and healthy and keep doing that. You don't become too spiritual for that. Uh, To the widows and widowers, he says, stay as you are. Uh, To the presently married, to a believing spouse, stay as you are. Don't get divorced. To the rest who are married to an unbeliever, don't seek divorce. Stay as you are. If they leave, that's okay. Uh, the rule is based on God's calling and Christ's redemption, Paul says it's good to stay as you are. Uh, since God calls since God's call sanctifies your present situation, but if changes come, then that too is acceptable. So you know th- this chapter has caused you know, people to look at you know, this scripture and you know Paul in a, in a certain way because of some of the things that that he says. but I think Paul's making a, a, a greater point. Um, So let's read a couple of these, and then we'll go on and talk about, uh, finish out our chapter here. Uh, But first, uh, verse number 1 through 3, he says, For as the matters you wrote about is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Chapter 7, verse 3, And likewise, the wife to her husband. So he's encouraging that to the married. Uh, Verse number eight and nine. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Again, Paul is happy. He's content. He sees no problem with staying single. So he says to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they they cannot control themselves, then they should marry. So he's not saying it's wrong to get married, but he's saying it's good if you do, it's good if you stay, Stay unmarried if you choose to marry, you know, fine if you can't control yourselves. Uh verse number ten, to the married, I give this command. Then he says, Not I, but the Lord. And and that's been kind of an interesting concept. Because it seems as one hand, Paul is just giving his opinion. Because he makes a statement here, now now I'm not saying this, but this is a command from the Lord. So it's that's caused people, well, you know, is is that just Paul's opinion? You know, or so there's just interesting phraseology there that he says so now he says not i but the lord you know wife must not separate from her husband if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband a husband must not divorce his wife so again he's saying no divorce stay as you are Uh, verse number uh, 12 he says to the rest uh, this i say or this i not the lord this is what i'm saying not the lord or there's no direct command from the Lord is probably a good way to say that. If any brother has a wife or who, is an, uh, who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. But if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. Uh, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in, in such circumstances. God has called you to live in peace. So his advice really to all of them is stay as you are, you know, unless circumstances change. You know, he appeals back to what Christ said about divorce, that that is not, you know, appropriate in, in, you know, in, just, in just any instance that you have. Uh, so basically he says stay as you are. <laughs> Since God sanctifies your present situation, God called you in that situation, stay in that situation. The last part of that chapter, uh, that never before married. Based on the premise of one, some are arguing that uh, virgins, that those betrothed to young women surely should not marry. Paul's response is that Paul agrees with the conclusion but not the premise. He offers different reasons for staying single. Uh, he mentions a present crisis that they are dealing with. But whatever else, do not be anxious uh, because marriage is also God's plan. So in verse 25 and 26, he says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgments as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, and the present crisis, um, we know through historians and other writers that during this time, there was a uh, famine, there was a grain famine that was going on. There were very difficult times for a couple of years here uh, in this part of the empire, and that could have been what he was, so they could have been facing some very difficult times, crisis is for providing for your family and things of this nature Um, he says in verse 32 he says i would like you i would like for you to be free from concern now here's why paul likes being single he doesn't like to be concerned with anything other than the lord he says i would like for you to be free from concern he says an unmarried man is concerned about the lord's affairs how he can please the lord he only has one person to please but a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but, as, but that you may live in a right way undivided, devoted to the Lord. So Paul is so devoted to the Lord, he don't have time for women. And he doesn't want time for women because that would divide his devotion between a woman and the Lord. And he says, I want the Lord to have all... And he says, that's better. He says, if you're unmarried, stay unmarried. So you can be totally devoted to God. He says, um, he goes on to say, if anyone's worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin that he's engaged to, or if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry then he should do what he wants. He's not sinning uh, if he gets married. He says, so they should get married. He says, but the man who settled the matter in his own mind, uh, who is under no compulsion and has control over his own will and who's made up his mind not to marry, that man does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Uh, So that might be a little bit of Paul's (laughs) opinion there um, about marriage. So Paul gives these, these rules and you see a little bit into his personality there as well but you see his extreme devotion to the lord um, we're not going to read and go through chapters 8 through 11 um, you can read that on your own but I, I will just kind of read the problem and the response that we have there because really this was a big issue in their day this is not a, you know, this specific issue is not a big issue in our day because we don't have pagan temples all around that are sacrificing idols to their gods and then bringing it to the marketplace and selling it and serving it in people's homes as food that's been sacrificed to their god. Uh, that really doesn't happen in 2019 uh, America. Um, so that's a kind of a specific cultural thing that's happening there. There are still spiritual principles there that can be applied. But the problem is... Um, since, no, since idols have no reality, some have argued they should have the right to continue attending temple feasts, feasts that were taking place in the temples of foreign gods. Family celebrations would be held there. Um, but yet the Jewish way of life was about not going into pagan temples and not, buying food, not even buying food in the marketplace that had been cooked or sacrificed in a, or to an idol in the pagan temple. So there are two major issues here. Should, should we still go to the pagan temples? And should we buy meat that had been offered to idols? Should we buy that meat when it is in the marketplace? Paul's response, he does not begin with the prohibition, but with their acting on the basis of knowledge rather than love. Being, he says, being encouraged to return to the temples is not encouraged. He's saying to them, you should not go back to the pagan temple. Temples, since you know the 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 pagan temples have a bad reputation. You know you don't need to be in there; it would destroy others' faith if they saw you in the pagan temple. It might give them say, "Hey, oh well, I saw my our brother from the church in the pagan temple. I I can go to the pagan temple." where All kind of bad things happen, so that is not a good thing for them to go to the temple, even though they believe there's only one God and those temples are just to false idols and there's really no gods in there at all. Paul says, "For other." believers, younger, young believers that could destroy their faith. Um, he defends his apostolic right to their support in chapter 9, uh, maintains that his actions are in the issue of evangelism, urges the need for self-discipline. He warns them of Israel's negative examples. Uh, he goes back to Israel and says that, that we should not be like them who died in the wilderness because of their hard heart and following, uh, not following the Lord. So finally, he explicitly forbids eating in the temples. To do so would participate in uh, demonic activities. But as for the marketplace food, Paul argues that Scripture itself is clear that God doesn't care one way or the other. So the believers were not to go into the pagan temples, but however, they could buy whatever food that they would like in the marketplace. He says, so buy and eat uh, unless it bothers uh, others' consciousness. Uh, so he says again, and this goes back to our Romans 14, you're free to do that. But if it causes a stumbling block to somebody else, from this case, from people coming to Christ, or if it causes a stumbling block for those who are trying to grow in Christ, he says, don't do it. Even though you're free to do it, unity and love is our basis. And even though you can do something, if it causes somebody else to stumble or it causes somebody from coming to Christ, it's better to not to do it for the sake of unity. So he has one by one clicked off all of these issues and given his response. That is a lot to cover, you know, in, in 45 minutes. Uh, there's so much in there. Um, but with, with, your, with, with your guide, go back and spend some time in that. You know, we'll really pick back up in chapter 11. Um, and we'll talk about what was going on really in worship what was going on at the Lord's table with them, uh, how they were abusing spiritual gifts, uh, the chapter on the resurrection. Um, So we'll cover some of that uh, again next week.